Lord, you've been so faithful this morning to deliver on your promises that your word, when it is sung, it edifies your church. Lord, your promises have come true when we've encouraged one another through conversations this morning. And so in a like way, we have every reason to trust you because your word says that when it is preached and explained, when we're exhorted by it, you work by the power of your Holy Spirit to change us. So Lord, edify Warnell Road Baptist Church. Conform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. Reveal to us in your word just how much you love us and help us to be a church that walks in love together. We pray that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was born, I obviously didn't know how to walk, but eventually I learned how to walk. And most of you don't know this, except maybe from my own kids. I walked a little bit funny. I walked, uh, I had pigeon, I was pigeon toed. Pigeon toed is when you have both your feet. I'll show you because I was so used to it. When you kind of walk like this with your feet inverted like that. It was nothing uh, that I couldn't change uh, without someone continually telling me and without someone giving the knowledge of how to walk straight. When I was really young, three, four, five, six, it really didn't bother me. And occasionally my mom would, would get on me about trying to remember to, to walk straight. And I would for a little bit, but again, it didn't really bother me until seventh grade and Danny Fitzgerald down the hall with my best friend, Ryan Aslan. And I remember the scene because it hurt so bad that uh, they mocked me and the way I walked. And from that point on, my mom's words and encouragement of how to walk, I didn't have to search for them so hard. They were just right there. And I began to walk from that point on all the way straight because I didn't want to walk like that anymore. It also made me a faster runner and all sorts of things. But I needed someone on me to tell me. You see, I knew I had the knowledge of how to walk straight, but I didn't really know how to. And it was my mom's kindness, her, her mother, uh, motherly nurture that was trying to help me to walk in a new way. And so as we consider the book of Ephesians and consider where we are in chapter 4, verse 25 to 5, 2... Paul now is telling the church things they pretty much already know, but he's being more specific in how they ought to carry out their love for one another. So the church knows the spiritual realities that have occurred to them. He's explained that in chapters 1, 2, 3, and much of 4. But now he's teaching what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of of the gospel, what it looks like to be a loving church. And we see, as we've seen through Ephesians, that a church that walks in love first knows and then does. 
Or we see that knowing leads to doing. In the passage that we're looking at today, Ephesians 4.25 to 5.2, Paul is teaching us how to walk and then what to know. And church, time and time again, you can see in Ephesians that all the commands, the imperatives, are always rooted in knowledge. And so follow along with me in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 to chapter 5, verse 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Church, we're going to see in this text four ways to walk and three things to know. Four ways to walk and three things to know. First, verse 25, let's be a church that walks in honesty. Let's be a church that walks in honesty. A loving church is full of honesty. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. As a new person, as a new creation created in Christ Jesus, we are to put off the old self. That's what we looked at last week in chapter 4. And a loving church should be a body of people where lying is put off and truth-telling is the norm. Notice the reason given for a church to be a place where falsehood is put away. For or because we are members one of another. You see the exhortation there again. The imperative is rooted in a spiritual reality. You're not disconnected Christians. You're Christians that are committed together because you are together in one body, one temple, one building. As he says in Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the, saint, with the saints and members of the household of God. 
Chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Church, you are one body. And it makes no sense to harm yourself by lying to yourself. So, kids, what if I told you... Well, first of all, children, how many of you have heard of someone named Tyreek Hill? Okay, some kids up there, Tyreek Hill. He is the fastest player, the fastest football player in the whole National Football League. So what if I told you kids that I'm faster than Tyreek Hill? I could beat him in a race, in a 50-yard dash, I could beat Tyreek Hill. That would be a lie, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a lie? Ford, do you think I'd be lying if I told you I was faster than Tyreek Hill? Yeah. That's nonsensical. And it has, it makes no sense to lie to myself. And it makes no sense to lie to church members. Lying in the church is like lying to yourself because we are one body. And it actually has negative effects. So just ask yourself, are you someone who exaggerates when you tell stories? That's a form of lying. And, and maybe dig a little bit deeper. Why do you exaggerate when you tell a story? Are you looking for some kind of affirmation? Are you looking for some sort of tension? Or maybe you're just bored and you want a good laugh. Don't exaggerate when you tell stories. We, we have some friends, Katie and I, uh, who are very honest. And when they're telling a story together, it gets really good. And then the husband said, will say, and there was 12 people there. And all of a sudden, the wife, no, 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 there weren't 12. There was like 13. And they'll go back and forth. And, and, they'll, and they'll go back. It was 12, 13. No, because remember, she had left, you know. There's, there's ways around that. You can just say 10-ish, 15-ish, 13-ish. Uh, but I always appreciate their desire to be correct and honest and not be in a category of liars. Do you are, you, are you honest when it comes to your taxes? Or do you lie on your taxes? Are you honest when you're talking to your employers? Many of you have been put in a situation where you've recently, where you've had to Honestly, tell your employees your opinions about getting a mandatory vaccine. And I'm encouraged that for those of you in your conscience who are wrestling with this, who have for various reasons decided not to get the vaccine, I'm encouraged that you don't want to be a liar and you want to be a truth teller. Just be encouraged. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is your new created self. Your old created self would less likely want to lead out in truth there. I wonder if any of you have even lied this morning. That's right. Just think about the way that someone has asked you the question, how are you? And maybe you're not doing very well at all. Have you answered fine? Oh, Mark, that's, come on, man. That's, that's, you're pushing that. Like, what am I supposed to say? Open up my whole heart there? I think we have different options. I don't think we have to necessarily open up our heart and tell everyone exactly how we're doing. But, but here's where I, I want to press a little bit. If we are to be a new covenant community of a bunch of people that are, are, are sinners saved by grace, 
we need to be reminded that we are all needing God's grace. And so when we communicate, fine, 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 like the birds in, in Little Mermaid, right? The seagulls. Like we could subtly create an atmosphere where we think that everyone is actually doing way better than us. And what does that cause us to do? It causes us to answer, I'm doing fine. Uh, so I, I don't want word police. We're, we're not going for that at all. Uh, you don't need to be open with everyone to the same degree. But let's just be creative and, and, and try to answer that question, how we're doing with a little bit more honesty, maybe some more vulnerability. Maybe even just say, oh, it's been a tough week. Would you pray for, more, pray for me? Oh, well, how, no, just pray for me. Thanks. You know, that's okay. You don't have to be open with everyone to the same degree. We long to be a church that is full of honesty, that's put off falsehood. We don't want to hinder one another and hinder the healthy growth that the Lord is doing in our church by lying. Either huge lies or white lies. Friends, they're all lies. Secondly, verse 26 and 27 Let's be a church that walks in grace. So to be a church that walks in love, here's what Paul's doing. We walk in honesty and we secondly walk in grace. This is a distinction of a loving church, this graciousness. Look at verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. All right, let's just walk through this verse. There's a way to be angry and yet not sin. Just notice that. There's a way to be angry and yet not sin. God is angry at our sin, yet he doesn't sin. And man can be angry at sin and yet not sin. So if you see an injustice occurring, you can be angry about that injustice. A righteous anger can be a very good tool if used wisely. So if we are looking outside our window and we see uh, someone getting beat, beaten up, you know, someone who's harmless, defenseless, getting beaten up by a, a band of misfits, like we should in some ways have some kind of feeling about that. We can't just cut ourselves off to that. That's unjust. Someone's being hurt. So righteous anger is, is good. But, but let's not be fooled. So much of our anger frequently is born out really out of selfishness. Someone maybe not aligning with our own personal desires. And, and that really irritates us, doesn't it? And then what does the text say? The devil begins to lick his chops when he sees a Christian in a church that is holding on to this unjust anger. And then the devil can really get to work. And so verse 26 says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't hold on to this anger that leads you to sin. Because what starts small and seems manageable will spread and touch every place of your heart if you're not careful. In our yard, we have mondo grass. How many? I don't know if that's just an East Coast thing. Mondo grass, you guys know what that is? Okay. That's why I looked up dwarf lily turf. Anybody? Okay. It's that grass that people use. They don't have to cut. It's green. It sprouts up like that. Okay. I'll just, just bear with me as I try to 
use this illustration. In our, in our yard, we have monographs right here uh, in Kansas City. And it spreads by underground stems and forms in dense colonies. So in order to get rid of it, you can't merely mow it down. You can't just pluck up one because it has a whole big root system. And so we're trying to get rid of it, but we need, to, we, need, we need some help. We need to dig out all of this because the roots are dug deep and they're, dug deep and they're intertwined. We can't just merely yank it from the top or cut it down. When you hold on to anger, sundown after sundown, when you hold on to anger night after night, it develops a home. And becomes like an invasive species in your heart. Also known as bitterness. And that's what occurs with this unrighteous anger. That is never repented, never let go of. And so the term root of bitterness is found in Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You see that? Grace related to anger. The grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. You see that corporate exhortation? Don't let a root of bitterness grow. So the root of bitterness is not the same thing as feeling anger or irritable. Yes, irritability is a sin. Goes against God's command to be loving, 1 Corinthians 13. But when irritation and anger just sit and they fester and they stew, the roots grow down deep like that mondo grass. And then there's this whole big root system. And so a prayer of God, God help me not be bitter, it seems to be, what Scripture's saying, not so easily answered after a certain point. You need more help. You need prayer. You need fasting. You need repentance. You need to go to that brother or sister and say, hey, will you forgive me? You see, when this happens, the devil sees an opportunity in the church and he seizes upon it. This can show itself in so many ways. We don't have time to get there. We'll get there in Ephesians 6. But friends, when we let the sun go down in our anger day after day or night after night, the devil has a lot of options now. He can really get to work. That's what the scripture is saying. So in basketball, uh, they teach you the triple threat position. It's when you have the ball right here and you're kind of squatting down, you have it on your hip. You see, from this position, you can do three things. You can pass it, you can dribble it, or you can shoot and so when we are a church that lets the sun go down our anger and there's bitterness in one heart or in several hearts, the devil can do a lot of damage in the church. Shoot, pass, or dribble. Go ahead and flip over to Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verses 11 and 12 there. There's a lot of spiritual language and there's a lot of principalities at work in our world that we don't give enough attention to. 
But the book of Ephesians is calling us to do that. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So what's going on here? The devil is scheming. He's like in a war room with all his legion of demons looking for ways to take down gospel proclaiming churches because the devil hates the gospel and the devil hates when a bunch of people commit to love one another and to love God together. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Church, let part of your motivation to not become bitter and an angry person at another church member be because the devil is given an opportunity when you do that. So In order to combat that, it should be a somewhat normal thing, especially the more you dive into the life of church members, to feel sometimes angry. Just like maybe uh, when I've done premarital counseling a few times, um, a few times, I've done it several times, several is a lot. I've done it 20-ish times. There we go. Um, There's been a couple a couple few, as they say in the Midwest, a couple few, two or three times where, been a couple, where, where, where a young, happy couple has said, oh, we just don't fight. Right? We just don't really get angry at each other. I'm like, oh, okay, that's great. Maybe they're just really peaceful people. And that's, that's awesome. That's how God has, has made some, some people natural disposition. But sometimes I just want to see well, what happens when you do get angry, because you're going to get angry. And in the same sense, in the church, you're going to get angry the more you dive in. You're going to be a little bit irritable uh, the more you rub shoulders with someone. So what do you do with that? Well, either, first of all, pray about that. Secondly, know the grace you've been given in the Lord Jesus Christ yourself. Thirdly, know that you could be wrong about something. And fourthly, go talk to that brother or sister. And if you're on the receiving end of someone who's angry with you, don't be so shocked that people are angry with you. Don't think so highly of yourself that you're never going to offend someone on purpose or on accident. Church, we need to be a church that is full of grace, a gracious church to walk in grace. So that when the temptation to let anger, uh, to let the sun go down on our anger is there, we don't give in to it. Thirdly, let's walk in generosity. Let's walk in generosity. Look at 428. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Uh, this is an exposition of the eighth commandment in the t- uh, from the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. You shall not steal. But rather than just instruction on what not to do, the Christian is to walk around saying, Not saying don't steal on repeat, but to walk in a manner that has a desire to be generous toward other saints. Uh, Look, look there in the text. He says, labor, do honest work with your hands, your own hands, so that again, here's a spiritual reality that we are one body and we have these needs that other body that, that other church members can fulfill so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. Romans 12, 13 puts it like this. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Saints have needs. Uh, Physical needs often I think is mainly what's 
going on here, but also spiritual needs. And praise God, how often do we see that going on in our church? Uh, Our sister Mary Jefferson has had several people help out with some different lawn care needs she's had. She's had. When I was, uh, had my knee surgery last year, many of you uh, brought meals to my house. I, I know that when uh, a woman has a baby in this church, she's well taken care of uh, meal-wise. In fact, the meal train gets filled up where there's no more room to give meals. Uh, church, thank you for doing that. That is, in a way, contributing to the needs of the saints. And so... Just notice from this text that if you're able to work, if you're able to earn money, part of your motivation for doing that is to look out into your church community and say, I want to earn money so that I can share with someone who has a need. Another observation from this text is that Christians can steal. It seems like kind of an odd commandment there. Hey, you who are, any thieves here? Anyone stealing on a regular basis? Say, stop stealing and start working. It seems interesting, right? But Christians can steal. To some of us, it might seem like, nah, surely there's none of us in here who could be thieves. Well, apparently you can be a Christian in a church and give into that temptation to steal. Otherwise, why would this command be there? Now, hear me out. That's no excuse to do it but rather a call to be aware that the temptation to steal is among us. And for those of us who aren't so tempted to steal, not to be so shocked when someone confesses that sin. Thievery is is a little more sneaky sometimes than stealing a bike or car. So I'm wondering, maybe you have stolen time at work. Maybe you've stolen some office supplies. Are you completely honest on your tax returns? Whatever the case, Christians should work honestly. And part of the motivation is to be generous with your money so you can supply a need of someone else. And if you're not in that position to work right now and and finances are tight, that's okay. These are commands. (laughs) Don't steal though. But have your motivation, how can I bless others? I want to be generous with my money or with my time or with my words to others. Imagine if we're all considering when it comes to our jobs, when it comes to promotions within our jobs, when it comes to our time, the question that this text is begging, will this promotion, will this job, will this use of my time contribute, help me contribute to the needs of the saints? That seems to be a normal question for the Christian when it comes to work. Fourthly, let's walk in encouragement. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Corrupting talk, coarse talk. Words that that land on someone and start to tear them down bit by bit. Like water that hits metal that's never clean dry. Just creates rust and corrodes it. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Just want to sit on that for a second. How much corrupting talk should come out of my mouth? No corrupting talk come out of your mouth. It's unbefitting for someone who is created new in Christ. 
to have coarse joking come out of their mouth. So then what kind of talk should come out of my mouth? The kind of mouth that builds up someone. You see, Paul doesn't say there's neutral talk right here. There's talk that tears down and there's talk that builds up. That it might give grace to those who hear. So friends, you can do this in in a variety of ways. You can do this by citing scripture. You can do this by looking for an aspect of grace in someone's life. Uh, Brother and sister, I've seen the way that God is working your life. And I praise God for that. It gives grace to those who hear. I can't tell you how many times I've been encouraged uh, by one of the saints in Warnell. I used to write them down. I don't even write them down anymore because I just feel so encouraged by this church. And, and if you're a member of our church and you're kind of on the periphery, maybe you're on the fringes a little bit, let me just encourage you. When you invest in this church, you'll find a body of saints that enjoys, on the whole, going around encouraging one another. That is a work of the Spirit and evidence of God's grace in our lives. If you're wondering right now, do I have corrupting talk that comes out of my mouth? The answer is probably yes. Probably not all your speech is giving grace to those who hear. For those who are married, it's, it's not, there's not an exception clause here. Notice that? There's not an exception clause. I remember when I first got married, I just assumed that I can say whatever I want to Katie. Not necessarily to her, like about her, but about anyone else. You know, oh, here's my, I can just say whatever I want. Here's my, my safe space. I don't see any evidence for that in scripture. Yes, you're one flesh. Yes, you can uh, communicate and debrief in different ways your spouse. But, but still here, don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Only that which builds up and is fit for the occasion. I wonder if whatever you're watching on Netflix or Hulu is helping you fulfill this command right here. Oh, Mark, I'm not talking. No, but you're hearing a bunch of talk likely that is corrupting talk. I just want to gently encourage you to ask God honestly, is what I'm watching, is my entertainment, is what I listen to, is it helping me be someone who speaks with edifying language? Church, remember what Jesus said about our tongue. In Matthew 5, 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Meaning, if you utter even one inappropriate, corrupting word, that means you are liable to stand guilty before God. That's how serious God takes us. And friends, apart from Christ, we'd all be in the same place, wouldn't we? Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Friends, this is not natural to me. If you have ever been encouraged by me. It is because of the Holy Spirit and it's because of me choosing to hang around people that I think have salty speech. 
And so if you're struggling with this right now, if, if your kind of MO is, is cynicism, sarcasm, tearing down, if you, if you struggle in your heart to encourage people with your words, find people who have salty speech, whose speech is seasoned with salt, that they love going around encouraging you. I, just a few examples, not to embarrass them in, in, in our churches, is Ken Kenny. The, the brother will call me and, tell, and leave, leave voice. He, who leaves voicemails anymore? Ken does. And he'll encourage me with something. Or hanging out with Josiah Sherrill. His speech is so often seasoned with salt. When, whenever Josiah maybe crosses line or maybe he just feels like he gets too close to that line, he, he quickly backs off and apologizes. That's great. Hang around people who have encouraging speech and their speech will, will, will rub off on you. Friends, flattery is not encouragement. Proverbs 26, 28, a flattering mouth works ruin. So you're not just going around saying things to people in order to, to get what is yours or to get what you want or to hopefully just make someone feel good. But look for genuine acts of the Spirit in someone's life. And when you see those acts of, of the Spirit in someone's life, say something about it. Comment on it. Encourage them. I used to have a friend who, who would say, uh, and there, there's some truth to this, so just hear me out. Um, if you're going to say something hard to someone, make sure that's kind of like a deposit. Or sorry, a withdrawal. But make sure you've deposited enough words of encouragement, first of all. Right? That way they will know that you care for them. Be careful with that. Otherwise, you can be a little calculated and cold when it comes to your relationships. Uh, but there's some truth to this, too. Is that mostly just be encouraging to each other. And that way, when someone has something hard to say to you, they don't have to butter you up first. You know what it's like when someone ever confronts you? You're like, you know, I'm very thankful for you. You're so good. I see God working your life. Okay, We're, just get to the point. I know you're about to hit me hard. We don't want to be like that. We want to be the kind of people that can uh, go up to, to have a relationship with Dalton or Andrew and just not butter them up first, but just because they know that we love them, just say something. If you see something that may, some kind of sin or corrosive talk in their lives or whatever it may be, say that to them rather than having to deposit encouragement right when you want to really withdraw something from them. That's not the kind of church that we want to be walking in love. Lastly, when it comes to being a church, walking in encouragement, are, are people around you growing? Are people around you growing? When you rub shoulders with people, are they growing in the spirit around you? Okay. Those are the, my best attempts to kind of uh, categorize the different commands given in chapter 4, verses 25 to 29. But then the apostle, as he continually does, he gets, does, he gets to these spiritual realities. Look at verses 30 to 31, and we look at three spiritual blessings to know. Three spiritual blessings to know. I think I said things earlier. I couldn't think of what I wrote. Three spiritual blessings to know. Three things to know. Uh, first of all, know our shared ceiling. S-E-A-L-I-N-G. Know our shared Ceiling. Look in verses 30 to 31 of chapter 4. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of, of redemption. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. You see, Christian, our faith is sealed in us by the Holy Spirit. We have been given eyes to see the truth and the goodness and the beauty of Christ. And now we all collectively have been sealed by the Spirit. Look over in chapter 1. All the the spiritual realities that Paul is teasing out, he mentions in chapter, uh, mainly in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. But in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is sealed in each one of us. In our text, it says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We can, in a sense, offend or insult the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this is a bit tricky. It's not in the same way that, you know, when we grieve or when we're offended, you know, It's different. It's language to help us understand that God is a person, the Holy Spirit, not just a person. And that God has nothing to do with sin. He hates sin. And so in this language, we're called not to grieve or offend the Holy Spirit of God. Because we are sealed by him with an inheritance for that day of redemption. And then verse 31 says, Therefore... Because you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, let all things that have nothing to do with what is holy, like bitterness, like wrath or fury, anger, and he must mean unjust anger here, like clamor, and clamor means kind of like shouting, a shouting match with someone. And slander, slander are are lies about someone, whether intentional or unintentional, that harm that person and their reputation. Let all these things be put away from you, along with all malice, all that is evil. Put away from you because it has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit from which you are sealed by. Paul is, is using, friends, Isaiah 63, it seems, in order to get at this idea. Isaiah 63, verses 7 and 10, in the context, uh, God is calling when he saved his people from the bondage of slavery under the Egyptians and he rescued them. And so in Isaiah 63, God says this. Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Under the old covenant... They were not sealed by the Holy Spirit. But in the new covenant, we are sealed by God's Holy Spirit. Friends, bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor have nothing to do with the stamp of the Holy Spirit on us. And Paul wants us to know that collectively, we have all been sealed with the Spirit. So in an act of awkwardness, but hopefully an act of helpfulness, I want you to look someone to, someone to your left and right and say, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit.
this is part of the plan to help us walk in love. To know that we've been sealed by the Spirit. Uh, Secondly, know our shared redemption. We have a shared sealing. We have a shared redemption. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Looking back to verse 1. Chapter, sorry, chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, Paul says this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You see, friends, the gospel is what Paul's getting at. Remember what the Holy Spirit's done in giving you a new heart and sealing you for the day of redemption. Remember your redemption that was purchased when On the cross when God forgave you because of Christ's sacrifice. Just as as you should forgive others, remember that God has forgiven you in Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're wondering what all this this language of being sealed by the Spirit, being redeemed, being adopted as sons unto God. If you're wondering what all that means... Friends, it means that all of these things that we're getting at, all of the unrighteous anger, all of the thievery, all of the coveting or wanting what is not yours, all those are sins. And that separates us from a holy God. And not one of us is free from being guilty of these sins. Just consider anger for a moment. This unrighteous anger. What is anger in its fullest expression? you've been angry at someone so angry that you start having these really evil thoughts maybe you even have murderous thoughts maybe you're even hoping that something would bat but, but you're like no 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 i wouldn't do that but what happens if you didn't have those safeguards to know that no though you shouldn't let those angry thoughts be carried out for instance someone doesn't just wake up and say i'm going to murder someone today it starts with a little bit of irritation And it grows and grows and grows and it blooms in something horrid. Friends, we all stand guilty before God because God sees our hearts. He knows the unrighteous thoughts. Not just, not only does he see our unrighteous deeds, but he knows our unrighteous thoughts. And so if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, that's why we talk so much about Jesus here. We know that we have no one to advocate for us except for Jesus. And that's why we speak so much about the cross of Christ. Because on the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ gave his life. He was the perfect sacrifice. And for all who trust in him to come to him by faith in him, by repentance, turning from their sins, they will be saved from the just wrath of God, the just anger of God. Because it's been poured out on Christ. Friends, this is what the this is what is known as redemption. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ. And therefore, when we look at one another, we have every reason to be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. It is a healthy place to be Christian when you are struggling with unforgiveness to remember how much you've offended your God. And yet how gracious he's been to you through Christ. Never get over this good work of redemption. 
It covers a multitude of sins, millions and millions of sins. And it lasts forever. No sin is so sinful that it's out of the redeeming arm, the redeeming, uh, it's, it's out, it, it can't be reached by the redeeming arm of Christ. Christ has paid for every failing. That person is Christ forevermore. So church, be kind, tender, and forgiving. And if you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to study Jesus. You will never find someone like him who is so holy and righteous and so tender and merciful and kind and forgiving. Lastly, know our shared adoption. Know our shared adoption. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Again, Paul's expounding on what he's already expounded upon in chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The call now is that we are new create, new create, new creation created in Christ Jesus to imitate our father as beloved children. Just like a lot of the little Warnell kids physically look like a lot of their parents. And I'm saying behavior wise act like a lot of us too. The good and the bad. We are to imitate our good heavenly father. And then to walk as Christ did in love. How did Christ love us? Verse 2. He loved us and gave himself up for us. How did God view that? As a fragrant offering. As a pleasing sacrifice. A sweet aroma. God was pleased with Jesus 100%. And if you are in Christ, God is pleased with you 100%. That's what Paul wants us to get from this book is in Christ. God is completely pleased with you. He doesn't have a cold shoulder toward you. He doesn't respond to your sin with harshness, but he's kind. He's the wisdom of a perfect father. Friends know this doctrine of adoption and know that your brother on your left and your sister on your right, they too have been adopted by the same God because of the pleasing sacrifice of Christ. Uh, Look down in your text real quick. In verse 1, we're called beloved children. We're called beloved children. If you go back to 1.6, the text says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then all of a sudden, You go to chapter 5, verse 1. Now we are beloved children. God wants you to know, Christian, that the love that he has for Christ is now on you. God loves Christ. You are in Christ. Therefore, God loves you in a like way that he loves his only begotten son. Friends, that love is on you. The triune love that has lasted forever and ever before the foundations of the earth. That same love God has invited you to share in. And now, not just share with God, but now share with each other. 
And the more we understand this work of adoption, the more we can marvel that God would adopt a vile, wicked child like us into his family and now call us beloved children. That's how powerful the sacrifice of Christ is. As I close here, let me read from you from J.I. Packer's Knowing God, him speaking about the doctrine of adoption. He says that you can sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion. If you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity. Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is a Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If we are to be a church that walks in love, we need love defined by an authority greater than yard signs, celebrities, and politicians, and to-do lists. Christian, look to Christ and see his pleasing sacrifice to God on your behalf and imitate that kind of other-centeredness toward one another. And if you look at the cross of Christ, the outflow of that will be a church that is honest, generous, gracious, and encouraging. Before I close in prayer, think upon the truths that you heard this morning, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, truly none of us can upheld the righteous requirements of the law. And that's why we say thanks be to Christ. Thank you for the gift of Christ. Thank you that we no longer stand condemned in our sins, but we are forgiven. Oh, Spirit, cause us to be a church that loves one another by forgiving one another, by being encouraging to one another, by being gracious and generous. Do this work in our midst. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.